If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I actually had to go and read the English Bible section of this because I prepared everything from Greek. And a couple times I've done that where I've gotten in the pulpit and realized I never looked at the English. And that's called being educated beyond your intelligence, I think. Okay. So we're going to look at the English Bible. And I want to tell you, we have a good translation, okay, in the New King James and the Old King James. And if you happen to have a Geneva Bible, that's a good translation too. And there are some other good ones out there also. But anyhow, just want you to know, I checked out the Greek, as they say, and I think we're on for some good things here. The Lord speaks to his church. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, as we've been working through the, the churches in Asia, well, today Asia Minor, at that time, it was the Roman province of Asia, today known as Turkey. Um, there were seven churches on the west coast, or the western area, and they weren't all right on the coast. Some of them were a bit more inland. And Thyatira happens to be one of those. And so here we begin reading at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and ye shall rule them, rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <coughs> Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to open your word to us, give us understanding in the scriptures, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply your living word to our hearts and minds in quickening and enlivening us, Lord, so that we can hear it, receive it, believe it, and live according to it, Lord. So help us to understand, Lord, what you have said about yourself. Help us to understand the warnings you have given and also the promises, Lord, that your word contains. And we do thank you for that. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, so we come to this section. The church in Thyatira is a little bit up the road from Smyrna. Uh, we come in contact or we first find out about Thyatira in the book of Acts, because if you remember in Acts 16, uh, when the apostles came to Philippi, which was a, a Roman city in uh, Greece or Macedonia, right in that area, <coughs> they went down to the riverside. There was a woman there named Lydia, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. So here we have a generation later, we find that the church is established in Thyatira. Many believe she probably had something to do with that. She had the church meeting in her house uh, in Philippi. If you remember when Paul and Silas were put into prison and beaten, and then the jailer came, and um, there was an earthquake, and the doors were all open. The jailer was about ready to kill himself, and they said, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. He brought them out, and he'd heard them singing hymns and praise to God, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your house. Later, after they sent to release, you know, the, the city fathers are going to dismiss them privately, but they'd beaten them publicly. And then when they found out they were Roman citizens, it put it didn't put the fear of God in them necessarily, but it put the fear of Rome in the, the city fathers. So they came and very politely asked them to leave their town. But first they went in peace. Lydia's house saluted the brethren, and the Philippian jailer undoubtedly was there with them. And um, then they said goodbye and they left. So that was Lydia's house, that was in Philippi. But in Thyatira later, uh, we find that there's a church there, and it seems to be in many ways a pretty good church. There's a lot of good stuff going on here. So, first thing, as always, we find out about Christ. The first thing is the vision of Christ that. that uh, John had at the start of this uh, book of Revelation where he saw Christ in his glory. <coughs> and so Jesus tells them as he, or as he addresses the church, remember the angel of the church, I've concluded that the angels are not angelic angels. It's, a, it's the Greek word messenger, angelos, because these angels are told to repent and the heavenly angels are not sinful and they don't need to repent. So this is clearly talking to men. Uh, the messengers of the church that had been sent to John as he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. But here we're told, uh, uh, thus says the Son of God. So Christ reveals himself as the one who is God's own Son, his only begotten Son of the same essence with the Father, and the one who is almighty and all-powerful. The Thessalonians needed to hear this. The, uh, he who has eyes as a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass or burnished bronze. Remember when John saw him, he had feet that looked as if they passed through the fire in his vision in chapter 1. Christ is the one who had walked through hell for his people. Um, you say, well, when did he ever walk in a fiery furnace? Well, read Daniel chapter 2 if you want to find where that is. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar looked in and he saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego after they'd been tossed into the fiery furnace? And all the fire had done is burn away the cords that had bound them. They were fine. They were walking, and Nebuchadnezzar looked in. And by the way, the New King James and King James gets it correct. Some of the modern versions completely distort that text. And Nebuchadnezzar looked in, and he said, I see three men walking, and a fourth one who looks like the Son of God. Um, 
And so then he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out. So our Lord literally walked through the fire that time. He walked through hell for us, but he endured hell on the cross. So he's the one. Christ is the one. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Nothing is hidden from him. That's very important for the saints to know. And also for the, the ones who were in the church that perhaps weren't saints, but had attached themselves to God's people. He is the one who sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. As again, his feet are like burnished bronze. He's walked through the fiery furnace and prevailed. Powers of hell were not able to keep him down. Literally, he rose from the dead. He conquered hell. He conquered death. He conquered sin because he took it away in his sacrifice. He has conquered the powers of hell. We need to know this. His feet have stood in the fiery furnace, as I said. He never abandons those who trust him. When he was in the fiery furnace, it was because three of his servants were there. Jesus didn't just you know, walk through the fiery furnace casually. He was there because three men that feared him were in trouble. And so he came and he preserved them. He blessed them. You, know, you can imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what they thought when they were being thrown in that furnace. They told Nebuchadnezzar, our God's able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve your God. So they trusted the Lord. They thought they were getting ready to die. A little sanctified imagination is not bad there. If you go back and understand the text, you can imagine what they must have thought. Here they get thrown into the fire. The men that had dragged them to that fire, by the way, it's Daniel 3. I said two earlier. It's Daniel chapter 3. Uh, and the men that threw them in the fire actually were killed by the heat. It was so intense. They fall down into the fire. It apparently had kind of a chimney aspect to it. So they took them up, threw them down into it. They fully expected to burn to death. All of a sudden they realize, hey, we're okay. We're able to breathe in this and we're all right. And then they look and they also saw one like unto the Son of God. They saw Jesus there with them. Um, and then when Nebuchadnezzar called them out, they were like, okay. So then they walked out the front entrance of this furnace Um but you can just imagine their thoughts like, wow, look what God has done for us. Uh, the Lord is able to deliver one way or the other. He was going, like they said, he will deliver us out of your hands, either in life or in death. He'll never abandon those who trust him in him to the will of their enemies. The saints in Thyatira needed to hear this. They needed to know these things. We need to know it too, because we're often called to go through difficult times. You notice in the next verse, he commends their works, their love, their service, their faith, their patience, and again, their works. And the latter, more lately, were greater than the first. Uh, there were many commendable things happening in the Thyatira church, and all such gifts and graces were growing. That's good. That's healthy. Christ knew, that is, remember the word, uh, I know your works, or I know thy works. The Greek word that's used there is not the, the normal word, or we might say the general word for Type general knowledge, gnosko, it's the word oida, it means to perceive. He knew, he perceived their works. <coughs> he knew the sincerity of those who were doing them. He knew their motivations is what that means. He had a perception of what their works really were. They weren't just doing things to appear righteous like the Pharisees often did. Those who were serving Christ in that church, their works were coming from a sincere love for Christ. Jesus knew that. He saw that. And he lets them know that. I know your works. And we see that. Um, he recognized and understood their inward graces being by his gifts of the Holy, his gift of the Holy Spirit to 
them. He was the author of those graces. And their outward labors that came forth from the inward fruits of the Spirit. Their love, the Greek word is agape. That's the same word used to describe God's love. It was an unselfish giving love. He saw that in them. And that was to God and to others. Their service. You see that love express itself in the fact that they were serving others. That the word their service is uh, diakonia. So we get the word deacon, meaning those who serve others or serve. Uh, the ministry born from sincere love. And then from that, their faith. Remember, faith without works is dead. They had a living faith. They were busy about the Lord's work. Not just knowledge of the truth of the gospel, but a trusting heart commitment to Christ himself and the triune God through him and the love for God's people that came from that. Their patience. You know, if you're going to work with people, the one thing you've got to have is patience. You know, uh, I was going to say not everyone is where they necessarily should be. And pretty much nobody is really where they need to be ultimately. That won't happen until Christ returns. So we need to be patient with each other. But he'd seen that this was the church. They were patient with the weak, those who struggled, those who perhaps were uh, sometimes under influences of false teachers. We see that's going to come up in the next verse. Uh, he's patient with them. And that's what we need to learn to do, to be patient with each other. So he saw their patience, not just with others, but with themselves, you know. It's one thing to be patient with other people. It's sometimes we have to be patient with ourselves and realize, okay, I'm not yet where I need to be. There's things I need to do. I need to ask God to help me in my life. There's sins I need eradicated. There's graces that I can see that I need. I need more patience. I need more love. I need more faith. I need more service. And we have to wait and wait on the Lord to bring those things about. You know, it's like the, the old joke about the fellow that, when he prayed, he said, Lord, give me patience, but give it to me now. Okay. Uh, Christ had seen their patience. So that idea carries with it the idea of endurance. They persevered. They were being patient. In many, many ways, a wonderful church. They endured and continued in their love, service, and faith in the midst of trials and persecution. He mentions their works again a second time, if you notice that. In verse 19 there, he said, and your works because they increased and they matured and they had grown. Many start well and end poorly in life. You know, we we're talking about Solomon on Tuesday nights. He started well, almost ended poorly, but there's enough evidence in Scripture, particularly the book of Ecclesiastes, to indicate that God called him back in repentance and that Solomon got right. Even Manasseh, probably the most wicked king ever, he started badly. But it actually says in the text that after he was uh, taken prisoner by the Babylonians, he then repented and got right with God. So some people start well and end badly. Some people start badly and end well. The best thing to pray for is to, Lord, help me if I've begun well. Help me to end well also. Help me to honor you. Help me not to end up being a foolish old person, but to be a wise servant of yours. Well, they had started well, and their works were increasing. Uh, the parable of the sower tells us that you can start well, but end poorly. If you remember, there are three of those types of ground were not fit, and they didn't bring forth fruit. Uh, the most dangerous one was the seed sown among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked the word. That's what we have to learn to weed our garden means confess our sins, repent of our own corruptions and lust and 
uh, bad speaking and bad doing and ask God to cleanse us, make us to be a good field where the word of God can bring forth fruit in our lives. Well, they had all this, but the next verse tells us that they were in danger. You know, a person can appear to be perfectly healthy. Many an athlete who has won awards has gone to the doctor and been told he or she has cancer. You know, and it's like, what? Yeah, there's something that needs to be dealt with. You're very healthy on many levels, but we have something. If it's not dealt with, it can take your life. Or sometimes, a, you know, a fever or a virus or who knows what. This church was sick. This church had a very serious illness. Christ tells them what it is. He rebukes them. Their the rebuke comes because they had tolerated a false prophetess and her immoral teachings and her leading others into those teachings. She's described under the name of Jezebel. Now, some you know have wondered, was there actually a woman named Jezebel in the church? Could be. I remember years ago, I was in Philadelphia, and there was a young couple. I was still a young man, and they were, they were walking, and they had a beautiful little baby boy in a carriage. And I said, oh, your, your son's a really, really good-looking guy, you know. And they said, oh, thank you. I said, what's his name? And they stopped. They were very proud of themselves. And they said, well, we wanted to give him a Bible name, so we just looked We looked up a, a list of, of names in the Bible. So we named him Dagon. <laughs> Dagon was the fish god of the Philistines. Okay, if you remember about Samson, the big statue that fell over and the hands broke off, etc. I was like, well, that's a Bible name. I didn't have the heart to tell him. <laughs> you know, he was a cute little boy. He's grown now. That was like 40 years ago. So you know, I wonder how Dagon's doing. Uh, hope he's done well. But could could this woman's name have actually been Jezebel? Well, I met somebody whose kid was named Dagon. So yeah, it could be. But I will tell you this. When this letter was read in the Thyatira church, if this woman that's being described here was not actually named Jezebel, as soon as it was read, they all knew exactly who it was talking about. Okay. Uh, you have, remember, this is a symbolic book. And thing, this is really good, good thing for help us get an idea. What, when we talk about symbolism, what does it mean? These are not just like little pictures like in a cartoon book that really have no connection to reality. You have the symbol and then you have the reality that the symbol represents. And often the symbol is very close to the thing that it's representing. Okay, And in this case, there was an immoral, false prophetess teaching and seducing Christ's servants, whose name may have been Jezebel, but if it wasn't, she certainly fit the pattern of the one in the Old Testament. If you remember Jezebel in First Kings and Second Kings, um, where she's mentioned, as a persecutor of she, of God's true prophets and also as a wicked and immoral woman who was judged, Jehu, they threw, when he came in and overthrew her husband um, and Jehu later became king when they threw out of the upper window, when they went out to bury her, to take her body and bury the dogs had eaten her and Elijah had prophesied that she would become dog dung all over Israel and that was her end. Uh, not a good end. So it was a good church, but they had a problem. Christ distinguishes also notice uh, between the false prophetess Jezebel, Jezebel with her adherents and those who had remained faithful. He will judge the wicked, but he, he rebukes the church itself for allowing the evil to come into their assembly. He doesn't charge those who were innocent of her wickedness 
with her wickedness, but he does charge them with tolerating it. Unlike the Ephesian church, it was doctrinally sound, but it left its first love. The Thyatiran church had love. They hadn't left their first love, and it actually increased. But they mistakenly, and I think it's just kind of like in Corinth, they mistakenly tolerated a false teacher and her immorality and those who were following her very possibly as thinking that that showed their magnanimity, that they were showing how much they were loving and kind. We see this today when you have churches that are allowing completely immoral wickedness to be brought into their churches under the guise of, well, we need to just love people. You need to love the Lord. You need to uphold the truth. In this case, it's very possible that some in the, because they were tolerating it, they were letting her go unchecked. And that's what he says. Um, if you notice when he, when he rebukes them, he says, you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eating sacrifice to idols. So <coughs> she said she was a prophetess. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, if someone claims to be a prophet or an apostle, and we see this in the new neo-apostolic movement, well, that lifts them above these, you know, lowly, you know, slop, you know, you know, tripping in the mud Christians and these poor dumb pastors that are out there just trying to teach the Bible. These men are apostles, or these men or women, why they're prophets or prophetesses. And so how dare you doubt their word? They're above, you know, you, and they're above what the ministers of the word might be teaching. And so you should ignore those guys and just listen to these prophets and apostles because when they speak, it's the very word of God itself. And so when someone comes and says, well, but the Bible says, ah, yes, but you know, I'm an apostle. I'm above that. I will tell you what God has said, et cetera, et cetera. That's what this woman was doing. She was claiming for herself an authority that she did not possess. All right. The authority we have in the church comes from Christ's word. Jesus governs his church by his word and spirit. You want, to want, you want to know what to do in the Christian church? You're a Christian. You want to know how you should live? The Bible will tell you. It does tell you. Well, how do you get that into your life? The Holy Spirit. Christ governs. Jesus is the head of his church. He's our prophet. He has spoken. If you read Hebrews, it says, God, who at various times and in diverse places spoke to the fathers through the prophets, now in these last days has spoken to us by his son. And it's very clear there in the English and in the original. It's talking about a definitive, completed word. Paul said, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away with. And there was revelatory gifts in the early church. Now, someone says, well, I believe God still speaks that way. The Bible says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Paul says, if anybody claims to be a prophet or spiritual, let them acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of God. And so it's important for us to prove all things. John himself says, try the spirits, whether or not they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And why? They don't confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They talk about the Holy Spirit all the time. They talk about the gifts. This woman uh, and her followers she talked about how it's okay, apparently, to, to participate in uh, idolatrous feast. that it's okay to uh, commit sexual sin, 
Later we see that, you know, under the claim of the deep things of Satan, they knew the deeper things. I remember talking to some New Age advocates one time, and they were really happy that I was this, you know, dumb Christian that just followed the Bible. And I said, well, you know, the Bible's the word of God. And they said, oh, oh we, we believe that too. But, and I've heard this several times from different people. But, you know, we're into deeper things. I'm like, yeah, no, you're not. Okay. In 1 John, um, actually, excuse me, it's not 1 John. It's 2 John. He says in verse 9, whoever transgresses, that means go astray, get off the path, and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. By the way, you shouldn't be allowing the Jehovah's Witnesses to come into your house, okay, or the Mormons or these other cults. If they come to your door, talk to them if you want to, but it says don't bring them into your house, uh, and, and, and nor greet them. For he who greets them shares in his evil deeds. That it, you know, says, oh, you know, have a great day, you know, etc. No, you need to tell them, you know, what you're spreading lies, you're going to go to hell, and you're wrong, and you need to stop doing this. Uh, John says, don't encourage those people. But you may say, well, I can handle them. Yeah, well, your children might not be able to, and you don't need them having these seeds of those of these heresies planted in their thinking, so they can't enjoy their faith. It took me years to appreciate John one one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Excuse me, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses try to say, oh, the word was a God. It's like, no, the Bible's not a polytheistic doc document. There's only one God. The Lord says himself, there is, I am the Lord, that is Jehovah, and there is no God together with me. There's no lesser deity. Jesus is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But, you know, you, you hear these heresies, and it stays in your thinking, and it really does steal your joy away. I remember when, I might have shared this with you, my friend, George Fink, when we, the first time we met Dr. Van Til, he was a pretty renowned theologian and apologist, and he was really gracious. We had lunch with him, and he took us to his house and gave us books and stuff. And we got to know him pretty well while I was in Philadelphia. Um, but George asked him, he said, why have you done all this work? You know, you've waded through, you know, Bart's, his, his uh, dogmatique and all these really heavy-duty neo-Orthodox false teachings and gone through and refuted them. And if you're familiar with Van Til's works, you know he did. He went through and exposed them as being contrary to Scripture. But George asked him, why have you done this? You know, what motivated you to do all this work to have to read this stuff? He didn't call it garbage, but I might have. But George said, you know, all, all these heretical writings so that you could refute them. And I'll never forget what Dr. Van Til told us. He said, for the little ones in the church, so they can enjoy their salvation. I thought, wow, okay, may the Lord do so in me also, okay? Um, you know, our children need to enjoy their salvation. So it's important that these heresies get dealt with. In Thyatira, there was false doctrine going out. Jesus rebukes them. Now, in, if he, in Ephesus, they'd lost their first love. They, that had cooled, but they were real quick. They tried those who said they were apostles and found they were liars. They dealt with them. They exposed them for what they were. In Thyatira, this the false prophetess had gotten in among them. And they tolerated it. And so there was a cancer that needed to be dealt with. <coughs> Christ is calling them to deal with it. The Old Testament Jezebel worshipped false gods. 
and she murdered the prophets of the Lord. That's in 1 Kings 16, 31, and chapter 18, verses 4 and 13, if you want to look it up. She was eventually thrown out of a high window that I mentioned and eaten by dogs and became dog dung all over Israel. Her New Testament counterpart was just as evil. She taught false doctrine and immorality. That's, well, it's okay, the Lord understands, etc. Uh, idolatrous worship is generally associated with immoral practices. And by the way, you know, he says adultery here. There's spiritual adultery also. You know, people, you can, if you're worshiping false gods or you've apostatized from the Lord, that's a form of adultery. It's spiritual adultery because we're in covenant with God. You know, a marriage covenant, a man and a wife are in covenant together. If one of them breaks that covenant through immorality, Jesus said that that can actually dissolve a marriage or it breaks that covenant. When you're in covenant with the Lord, and you turn away from him and begin to worship other gods, you've broken covenant with God. And there's, so there is a spiritual adultery that is uh, wickedness also and damnable. And so the Lord here calls this uh, woman a teacher of immorality. She encouraged idolatry and the, and the participation in idolatrous feast to eat things sacrificed unto idols. She was soon to be punished, the Lord tells the, uh, Thessal, uh, excuse me, the Thyatiran church. She, with her adherence, now the thing that's interesting, God says here in, in, in this epistle, he said in verse 20, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. She had given a space of repentance, and she had hardened her heart. Apparently, she knew she needed to repent. Someone there had called her to repentance, and she had not done it, and that time had passed. That's interesting because we, sometimes we think, well, well, you know, you can get right with God whenever you want to. And beloved, that is not true. There is a time to repent. And if the Lord's speaking to you and telling you you need to deal with your sin, you need to deal with it. Because there's a time when God will give people over. Romans chapter 1 talks about God giving people over to wickedness and to judgment and eventually damnation and hell. Uh, there are damnable sins. And so Jezebel had been given a time to repent, and she had ignored it. But it's interesting because the next verse says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed. Where is just a bed, but it, in implication, it can mean a sick bed. The man that was, remember when he was on the cot, and they let him down through the roof for Jesus to heal him, the paralytic, and Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. <coughs> and the Pharisees didn't like that, but then Jesus healed him. The word used for the bed that he was on is the same word that's used here. He's going to throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, <coughs> excuse me, unless they repent of their deeds. God had given her victims, her dupes, whatever you want to call them, still time for repentance. <coughs> so her time had passed. Those who had been caught up in her false teachings and immorality, their time hadn't passed. That's why the Lord is addressing this epistle to them. Then he says, and I will kill her children with death. Now some said, well, does the Lord kill children? God's sovereign over all things. In this case here, I think we can understand this is probably to be taken symbolically. Those who were the offspring of her false teachings, those who had been begotten of her lies, uh, they would die the death if they continued on. <coughs> I apologize. I ran out of coffee. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be a little more articulate. So 
So we see this, that the, this, this disease in the church had to be dealt with. <coughs> he says, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds, literally the kidneys. That is your, your reins, as it's called, your renal, uh, that idea. The seat of your emotion is, is the uh, Greek word, or the, it's that, that word, how that's understood in the Bible. And hearts. He knows your motivations. He knows your thoughts. He knows what's going on inside of you. You can't hide from him. All right. And he says, and they will know that I am he who searches the minds of the hearts. Remember, whose eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything. And I will give to each one of you according to your work. So don't think that if you don't repent, it's going to be well. You know, you might be able to fool men, but you won't be able to fool God. And then he gives promise. He says, and now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, that is these teachings of this immoral uh, false prophetess, <coughs> who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say. And some said, well, did they really talk about their teaching as, quote, the depths of Satan? They may have. They may, may have claimed that they really understood the devil and his ways. They had a deeper knowledge and understood these things. Uh, some have said, no, they just called it the, their deeper things. Christ is calling it what it really is. Their, their deeper things are the depths of Satan. He said, a lot of you, you haven't been involved in that. You recognize it as error. You've been spared from that. He says, I will put no other burden on you, but hold fast what you have till I come. Don't let loose of your profession nor of the life that is required with that profession. Hold on to Christ. He says, and he who overcomes, the one who keeps my works until the end, that is the one who isn't pulled aside by these false teachings. To him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And it's like, well, what does this mean to rule the nations? Well, it means to pray and to serve Christ effectively in your generation. Some say, well, could this be a reference to after we're with the Lord in glory? It could be. But, you know, the old saying that the saints rule the world by their prayers. And we call upon God. You know, we see political situations. We see things going on in the nations. We see wickedness going unchecked. Beloved, we need to pray. Christ has given his people authority over the nations, that is, those who overcome, those who persevere in the faith. If you're trusting in Christ, God hears your prayers. When you're aware of the situations going on in the world where the gospel is being persecuted, those who hold to it, we need to pray. We need to trust God. But recognize here, Christ is letting us know the wicked are not going to win. He does give his people victory. And we do have authority, not of ourselves, but, but by going to Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. But note, he says that I shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. That is where there's wickedness. God will deal with it. As I also have received from my Father. So Christ gives that authority to his bride that he himself received. And he says, and I will give him the morning star. Now, I love that because the morning star... <coughs> In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So he's saying that the one who overcomes will have close fellowship with me. You'll know the Lord. You'll enjoy his presence and his comfort. You'll, you'll, Jesus, he will give you the morning star, which is himself. And the victor is the one who keeps Christ's works to the end. And again, it, it concludes, though, he says, uh, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. It ends this way. And the one possessing an ear to hear, who has the ability given to him to heed God's true word given by the Holy Spirit, not just in his physical ears, but with understanding in his heart, that one is commanded to hear. He who has an ear must hear. That's an imperative. He must hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's not just to the Thyatira church that this warning goes out. It's to all churches. We're a church. This warning comes to us. Christ is speaking to us in this epistle. This also shows the universality or the Catholicity, if you will, and the applicability of the warnings and promises given to the Thyatira church and all other churches. All right, so quickly, what does all this mean? If we can make some application. Well, first... What this means is we need to grow in grace. The Thyatiran church was growing in love, in patience, in faith, uh, in many good things. We need to ask the Lord, help us to grow, help us to be faithful in service and in patience. We must not rest on our good works and graces and allow sin to go unchecked because we're doing some good things. Oh, we're, you know, we're helping, we're feeding the poor, we're doing this, you know, we're protesting abortion, we're you know, we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's all great, okay? We need to be doing those things, but we can't leave other things unaddressed. So you can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I, uh, I go to church every Sunday, so it's okay if I indulge in a little bit of wickedness now and then, right? No, it's not. You got to deal with that disease, that cancer. You can't put up with, with it. <coughs> we can't excuse ourselves simply because there are good things going on in our lives. Now, there are many good and commendable things in us. You know, you can say, yeah, I'm in a church where people seem to really, truly love each other. That's great. We need to recognize that. We need to be willing to say, but Lord, we want to grow. There are areas we need to improve individually, as families, and as a congregation. Uh, secondly, or thirdly, or fourthly, actually, at this point, uh, the church must not, must not tolerate evil doctrine or immoral practices, nor those who teach such. You know, sometimes when people try to introduce new things, there's, there's a way they do it. I've seen this on a denominational level. I've seen it in local churches. Somebody comes in and they start spreading false doctrines. And so the pastor addresses it privately, trying to deal with it. But there's people being taught privately false teachings. The elders try to deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the next thing you know, people are saying, well, you know, the pastor has a problem with brother so-and-so. It's like, no, he doesn't. He has a problem with what brother or sister so-and-so's teaching or doing. And then the next thing you hear is, well, pastor, you know, you really shouldn't be divisive. You're being divisive. It's like, no, I'm actually not being divisive. I'm trying to deal with some things here. Okay? Sometimes pastors, by the way, can be the ones who bring in the false teachings also. Okay, Everybody has to be subject to the word of God. You have a Bible. It's your job to check out your teachers and preachers. Okay. But we shouldn't tolerate false teaching, whether it's coming from the pulpit or from coming from the session or coming from the members of the church or whatever. We need to be diligent in upholding the body of truth that's contained in the scriptures. We can be charitable, charitable about that, and we need to be patient with each other. But a church should not, when you know it's a bad doctrine, when you know it's evil and there's, you know there's evil practices, you can't say, well, you know, we just need to love them the way they are. No, not what's it. If they're trying to bring it into the church and tell other people it's okay to do it, that's where it has to be addressed, okay? So the church must not tolerate evil doctrines. So we need to grow in grace. We need to not rest on our good works. Um, we need to recognize that even if there is good, we still have need for growth and reformation. And then we shouldn't tolerate immoral practices. 
And we must separate from those who hold and promote false teachings and idolatry and immorality. You know, we can't just say, oh, well, let's see, we're having an ecumenical feast with all these other churches that are ordaining homosexuals and, you know, saying it's okay to do this kind of stuff and things like No, we can't have fellowship with those types of people, particularly if they profess to be Christians. We must, ref- and number six, we must renew our vigilance for Christ. Christ was calling the, the Tyrant Church here to repent and deal with these problems. We're not, you know, there's not a follow-up epistle on this. You know, we have 2 Corinthians where we find out that's the follow-up letter. We find out they did deal with the immoral, immoral person and the false teachings in their church. We don't have that with Thyatira. We don't know how they took this. We hope and pray that God's word had effect on them. But we, as we read it, we are called to renew our vigilance for Christ's truth daily. It's called picking up your cross and following him, speaking up when you need to speak up. Being kind, being loving, being gentle, but speaking the truth in love. And then finally, we must hear and keep our eyes on the victory. And the last day when Christ returns in glory, judgment occurs and eternity begins. You know, we've got to have, as as the saying goes, you have to have your eye on the prize. The promise is not to those who just hear. The promise is to the, the one who overcomes. So you've heard it. Now we need to pray. Say, Lord... Give us that victory. Help us to deal with sin as it needs to be dealt with. Help us to recognize your gifts and graces in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters. And help us to love you and love each other as we should and to persevere and see those graces grow. And Lord, if we're believing or doing things that are contrary to your will, even if we're unaware of it, Lord, open our eyes, show us what the truth is so that we'll be led in the way everlasting. Like David said, try me and see, search me, O Lord. And see, search my heart and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So kid, ask the Lord, Lord, show me if I'm doing things that are displeasing to you that I'm not aware of. Make them known so I can get right with you if I'm doing things that offend you. When David said, Lord, cleanse me from secret sins, he wasn't meaning sins that I'm doing that nobody knows about. He meant sins that I'm not aware of. We're capable of doing that. You remember Josiah, when they read the law to him, when he heard God's law, he tore his garment. and He said, woe is us. You know, we've been doing these things that God says he's going to judge us for, and we didn't even know that it was displeasing to him. Sometimes that happens. When it does, we need to respond in repentance and faith and trust God. That's the epistle to the Thyatiran church, and I hope uh, the Holy Spirit will keep it in our thinking and give us grace to really persevere and follow Christ and deal with sin in our lives and in the church and pray and recognize we have authority. It comes from Christ. It's his authority. And as we go to him and call upon him, we'll see good things happen. Let's pray. Gracious God and heavenly father, we do pray you'd be with us now. Write your word in our hearts and minds. Help us to remember what you have said. Forgive us our sins, Lord, we pray. Forgive us for tolerating evil, because we, Lord, we have all too often in ourselves and sometimes in your church. And we pray that you would just help us to be doctrinally sound, but also pleasing to you and loving one another, Lord, and help us to deal with uh, each other gently and with patience. And we do pray, Lord, that you would protect your people, both in this congregation and your true church throughout the world. 
And we pray that you would purge out false teachers and, and false teachings and immoral practices and help us to really walk with you in a manner pleasing to you and those good graces you've brought forth. We pray, Lord, you'd cause them to prevail by your spirit, Lord, that you'd grant to us that victory that you speak of. And we'll trust you for it, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.